Hello and welcome once again to an episode of Bill Allen's uh, Facebook Studies. We are going through the F. Lagarde Smith, The Daily Bible in Chronological Order this year on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 3 p.m. Central Time. And of course, if you're watching later than that, that's wonderful. We have it on our website, westerwin.com. Uh, click on the connect uh, line and you'll scroll over that and go to our live stream page and scroll down a bit to video archi uh, archives and uh, then you can find all of these lessons and many, many more. Uh, but as we go through this, uh, the, the daily Bible in chronological order, and here it is December 15th, that kind of tells you that, well, I'm thinking that we're probably going to be... Uh, Finishing out pretty soon, which means that we're well into the New Testament. And uh, we've seen that as we've gone through the Gospels uh, and then the book of Acts. And we've just finished the book of Acts, uh, all 28 chapters. And along the way, looked at some of Paul's writings as he is involved in his mission journeys and writing letters to, uh, to churches. And today, uh, where we leave Paul, where Luke leaves Paul anyway in Acts 28, is under house arrest in Rome. He's finally made it to Rome. And while he's there, remember, he had appealed to Caesar, the Roman emperor, because he couldn't expect to get a fair trial from his people, the Jews. So he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen, his right to do that. And um, the governors uh, tell, say, okay, then we'll send you there. And that's, that's where we have him in Acts 27, that exciting narrative about uh, that voyage across the Mediterranean Sea to Italy and uh, shipwreck and, and deserted on an island and finally in Italy and then up to Rome. And uh, while there, he is able to have some freedom as far as people coming to see him. And it doesn't sound like he's able to go anywhere, but he's there for at least a couple of years. Perhaps Luke wrote a volume three. Perhaps he didn't. Perhaps he intended to and didn't. Or maybe he did, but it wasn't considered, it wasn't uh, by God inspired scripture of the Holy Spirit. So it's not extant, which means it's not around. We still don't, we don't have it available anymore. And it's not part of the authorita authoritative Bible that we have today. But his first two volumes are maybe the only two, the Gospel of Luke, the story of Christ, and the book of Acts, that narrative of the first 30 or so years of the church's existence from uh, the ascension of Christ in chapter one, the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church in chapter two, all the way till we find the apostle Paul under house arrest in Rome uh, sometime around probably AD 60 or a few years later, maybe uh, as best we can tell from history, scripture doesn't tell us this, but from history, it seems that he was released, was able to do some more mission traveling, uh, perhaps all the way up uh, to Spain, which was his dream, and then ultimately arrested again, brought back to Rome to face a trial again under Emperor Nero, and then sometime 65, 66, 67 uh, AD or CE, common era, whichever you prefer, um, he was put to death by beheading. You can't crucify a Roman citizen, and Paul was a Roman citizen. So he was beheaded about the same time as the Apostle Peter, as best we can tell, was crucified upside down in Rome. The reason upside down is because he did not feel worthy to be killed in the same manner that his Lord was. So he requested that. Um, but before we get to that point, we still have some New Testament to read, don't we? We still have half a month to read through the rest of the Bible. 
And today we're going to look at what we call the prison epistles. Did you figure out which ones those were? Well, they're Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Paul writes to three uh, to churches in three different areas, perhaps three, two cities and uh, three cities and and uh, the areas around them, and then also one individual who lived in one of those cities, Colossae, and perhaps the church met at his house. That's what it seemed like anyway. Uh, and those are the four letters that Paul writes that we have anyway, as best we can tell from uh, studying those kinds of things. Uh, that Paul wrote uh, sometime around A.D. 60 uh, from uh, house arrest in Rome. So I want us to look at those four, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And I want us to begin with the book of Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians. In fact, you can scroll down and find on archives or on my Facebook page, um, uh, actually not on my Facebook page, but in our archives on our website and on our West Irwin Live Facebook page, you can find my uh, sermons in the series, Blessed to Bless. It's a short sermon series considering the powerful nature of the book of Ephesians. But we go through the book of Ephesians there. And so I'd like to take us a, for just a few minutes through the book of Ephesians. And then we'll look at Colossians and Philemon and end the study today with a quick look at the joyful uh, celebration of the book of Philippians. Uh, Ephesians is a great, great book. It is a powerful book. It's it's wonderfully organized, and I divide it up like many do into two parts: chapters one through three and chapters four through six. That fits very nicely, and that uh, that that structure is much like the Book of Romans, except it's not as many chapters. Ephesians has six chapters. Romans uh, has um, sixteen, and uh, with with Romans you have chapters one through eleven that are that are very much on uh, the plan of salvation and how we're saved and uh, what it means to be righteousness, to receive the righteousness of God by grace through faith. And then chapters 12 through 16, um, mostly saying, okay, here's, here's what that means. Here's how you should live because of all of that. Chapter six in Romans is a brief little parenthetical statement that talks about how we are to live our lives in a new way after we die to sin and are buried with Christ through baptism into death, we're raised to live a new life. And chapter six talks about that. And then right back at it in chapter seven. And so as we're, as we're thinking about this from the perspective of Ephesians, I think that part is chapters one through three. And then the application, how should we then live, is uh, chapters four through six. And it starts with chapter four, verse one, where Paul makes the general statement that we should live in such a manner that is worthy of the sacrifice that has been given for us. Uh, we can never earn it or deserve it, but we can live in a way that honors it and is worthy in that perspective. And so Ephesians starts out with a, with a bang. Uh, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Boy, what a great and powerful statement right off the bat. We have every spiritual blessing, but those blessings are only found in Christ. Are you in Christ today? Have you been baptized into Christ? That's what scripture says. We saw that time and time and time again going through the book of Acts. And Paul references that here. And he's going to say a lot about the great blessings that we have in Christ in these first three chapters, especially. He talks about how we are chosen uh, and you have, <clears throat> you have value today, no matter what else is going on in your life. 
<coughs> Excuse me, even if you're fighting off a cough still, uh, occasionally, no matter what else is <coughs> going on in your life, um, you've been chosen. You've been created in the image of God, and you've been chosen. If you have been baptized into Christ, then, uh, then you are one of God's children, as Paul talks about in Galatians and Romans 8, and, um, and he calls us that here in Ephesians as well. And so we have value because we're created in the image of God and because the very Son of God died on the cross for our sins. This month, uh, over these next few weeks, we celebrate uh, the birth of Christ in a, in a wonderful way. And I'm so glad the world pauses to remember that greatest of all gifts. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I, I know that Jesus came into the world with great celebration. The angels in heaven even couldn't hold back. Uh, praising God and, and glorifying God because of, of the great blessing of his plan and the Savior being born. Ultimately, as you know, he would live his life and die on the cross for our sins, his blood shed for us, his body broken for us, and then on the third day be raised from the dead, ultimately ascending into heaven. And then less than two months after that, um, after that death, burial, and resurrection, uh, he begins his church in a very powerful way recorded in Acts chapter 2. Paul tells us that all of those things give us value. You have value. Uh, you mean something and you are important. He speaks about the great plan of God, the mystery. Uh, we read about that in Ephesians and Colossians and some other places, this mystery where God was going to be saving all of humanity through Jesus Christ, Jew and non-Jew. That means Jew and Gentile. Uh, there are a couple of great uh, prayers that are listed in uh, the book of Ephesians. One of them starts in verse 15, and he he's praying for the Ephesian Christians. And he says, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, heard of your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Then in verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Much like uh, what we'll read in Colossians 1, and then in verse 22, he says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You cannot read these epistles, these, uh, uh, these first century documents, these important New Testament scriptures without coming away with a, a very high view of God's church. It is the body of Christ the saved, and he refers to it that way several times. One of the great passages of Scripture, not that there are any bad ones, but one of the great ones is in Ephesians 2, and I'd like to read it starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The way Paul puts it in Ephesians and Romans 1 through 3, all have sinned. 
Paul says that's how you live, but, verse 4 starts out, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Again, these spiritual blessings only come in Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Uh, I think uh, Bob Hendren's wonderful little book on Ephesians years ago was Chosen for Riches. Uh, again, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For sure, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not just a universal salvation that since Christ died, there's no response of faith. You don't have to do anything to be saved. You don't have to believe. Uh, you don't have to trust him. You don't have to repent of your sins. You don't have to do anything. Well, that's one view, but a different view, a biblical view, is that we are saved by grace through faith. That is our part. That is what we do. It doesn't cause us to be saved. It doesn't earn us salvation. It simply is an act where we accept that salvation. And it is the answer to the question we saw several times asked in the book of Acts, what must I do to be saved? The way Paul puts it in Ephesians is we are saved by grace through faith. The way he'll put it in Titus 3 in a very similar passage is through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. I think referring to, to baptism. For Paul, he includes that in that response of faith. And he's very quick to add, not by works so that we can't boast. Believing in Jesus is not a work. Repenting of your sins is not a work. Being baptized into Christ after your confession of that faith is not a work. It is simply a part of the response of faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's not a work that you do that entitles you to salvation. Jesus hadn't died. There's nothing that we could do. But because of the gospel, because he died and was buried and was raised from the dead and now lives forever at the right hand of the Father until he comes and gets us, because of that, there is a response of faith. And we're grateful for that. And then verse 10 says, well, that, and we want to ask the question, so what? <laughs> okay, so we have this great salvation, so what? Well, that's where verse 10 and Ephesians 4 through 6 come in. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's where good works fit in. Good works fit in after salvation. We are saved by the grace of God through the response of faith. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But we can live a life that is worthy. And that's what chapter 4, verse 1 says. As a prisoner for the Lord, again, this is one of the prison epistles. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Well, we can't earn it. We can't uh, do anything that would cause us to be entitled to it, but we can honor it by living that worthy life. Uh, throughout chapters 2 and 3, Paul continues that theme, and, and he's really talking about the difficulties that they were having in the first century, including in Ephesus. Ephesus and Colossae uh, are in that uh, western part of modern-day Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. Philippi, that we'll read later, 
uh, is in modern-day Greece, the northern part of modern-day Greece, the first place Paul stopped on that second mission journey with Silas and Timothy. And so all of these churches, after Cornelius was baptized, and you remember that story from Acts 10, the first non-Jewish convert, and all of the hubbub about what do we do with these Gentile Christians? Do we make them keep the law? Do we make the males be circumcised? What do we do? And they finally realized that that was not part of the gospel. And so Paul is speaking about that mystery in chapters 2 and 3 especially, about how God was taking the two divided people, Jew and non-Jew, and making of them one new person in Jesus Christ, tearing down the wall that divided us uh, racially, ethnically, uh, culturally, between Jew and non-Jew, and making one new person in Jesus Christ. What a great, great, uh, uh, wonderful statements in chapter 2 and 3. And then towards the end of chapter 3, he offers up another prayer. Uh, for this reason, verse 14 in chapter 3, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And he had talked about that at the end of chapter 1, that indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people or saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. What a great statement. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he offers up a doxology, which is just a word of praise, two words from the original Greek language, doxa, glory, and logos, word, doxology, a word of grace, of praise to God. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. My dear friends in North Carolina at the South Fort Church of Christ and my dear friends at the South Side Church of Christ in Fort Worth teamed up together uh, for several years and some are still going when we can to Ukraine uh, to teach children about God and about his love and the word of Jesus Christ and, uh, and helping them in, in ways. And we called ourselves Team Imagine. And it was straight from these great verses. Well, as I said, in chapter four, he takes a turn. He starts answering the so what question in detail. He starts out with this great call for unity, much like we'll read in Philippians 2. Uh, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's the atmosphere in the church for unity. And then the basis is in the verses that follow, starting in verse 4 of chapter 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Does it matter what you believe? It absolutely matters what you believe. It needs to be cons consistent with the teachings in this book, in God's holy word. Um, he goes on to say, well, even though we're one body, we have lots of different gifts, lots of different interests, lots of different ministries, and they're all to build up the body of Christ. Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And in that passage, he's talking about Christian maturity, maturing in the faith, 
And it's in the context of that that he says, instead of being blown around by whatever wind the culture has blowing in it, and we face that daily today, instead of that, verse 15 of chapter 4 says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Growing in our faith, speaking the truth in love. All three of those are significant. Speaking, we must speak. It must be the truth that we speak, but we must speak the truth in love. None of those is negotiable. None of those is optional. We are to speak, and it is to be the truth of God's word that we speak, and we are to speak it in love. <clears throat> the rest of, of Ephesians really talks about how we live our daily lives. He spends some time, as you know, in chapter 5 with the family, talking to husbands to love their wives the way Christ loved the church, talking to wives to respect their husbands, the way the church respects Christ, it's not doesn't give husbands the power of Jesus over their wives. It simply is to say husbands are to be willing to give everything for their wives. And wives should be willing to uh, respect their husbands in such a way that, that affirms them as well. Emerson Egrick, Shanti Feldhahn, many others have written some great and wonderful things about all of that. A great couple of verses in chapter 5 at the very beginning, though. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, still in Ephesians, sorry. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Many have talked about the indicative and the imperative. We saw it in uh, uh, there in chapter 4. We see it here, the beginning of chapter 5. The indicative is the blessings we have. God chose us. He saved us. Uh, now we also have the imperative, uh, and you see this, follow God's example. That's the example we have. That's the indicative as dearly loved children. Again, we're already dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. That's the imperative. We are to walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us again, the indicative and gave himself up for us. So we see that it starts with God. It starts with Christ. He's done everything for us. Without us, while we were still sinners, Romans 5 says, Christ died for us. Now walk in the way of love just the way Christ has loved us. So many other wonderful things in this passage in Ephesians 5 and 6. He finally gets to uh, uh, verse 10 of chapter 6 where he talks about the armor of God. We sing the great hymn, Soldiers of Christ Arise. Uh, and he talks about in that song, the panoply of God. But take to arm you for the fight, the panoply of God. Well, that's a transliteration of the word in the original Greek, and it simply means full armor, the full armor of God. Take that full armor of God, and he enumerates that uh, starting in verse 14. The belt of truth buckled around your waist, Ephesians 6, 14. The breastplate of righteousness, our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. Um, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then the last part of that armor, I believe, is in verse 18 and following prayer. And thus, we have this incredible letter to the Ephesians uh, that reminds us how we should live. Well, I want us to look at the book of Colossians and Philemon and a quick look at the book of Philippians as well as time is getting away from us. Um, but Colossians is a great book for us today because it talks about the, the philosophy of the world. One of the key verses in Colossians is Colossians 2, verse 8. 
Colossians 2 verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In the first century, it was the same as today. They had different philosophies. They talked about things that they had seen rather than the word of God. Um, in fact, he mentions that in Colossians 2 verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 23 of chapter 2, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In these first two chapters, he's lifting up Jesus as the ultimate supreme one. That's chapter one. He has, he has all the fullness of deity in him in a bodily form. He is the word incarnate, as John 1 verse 14 says, the word, the eternal word, the creator word became flesh and lived for a while among us. And then chapter 3, like chapter 4 of Ephesians, chapter 3 of Colossians begins that, <clears throat> that so what part. And he starts out in the first few verses saying, set your mind and your hearts on things above. Yes, you've heard that passage of scripture before, and it's in the first several verses of Colossians 3. Uh, how do we get out of this mindset of this world is it and become all consumed with the difficulties of this world and the trouble that we have in this world, we set our minds and our hearts on things above. It doesn't mean that we let this world go to pot and don't care. That's not it at all. But it does mean that we realize that our eternal home is ultimately in heaven. And so he says, to put to death all of the bad things that thou shalt not. And then he says, instead, live like this. Verse 12 of chapter 3, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Again, indicative comes before imperative. The imperative is to forgive. The indicative is forgive as God has already in Christ forgiven you. Verse 14, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And then this great verse in Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When do we have permission to not live according to the word and will of God? Well, never. Oh, but Bill, what about after we leave church when we're at home? Yes, we still are to offer up all of our words, all of our deeds, all of our thoughts, uh, in reverence and honor and obedience to Jesus Christ. What about when I'm on the job? Same. What about when I'm uh, at the grocery store? Same. What about when I'm driving on Broadway or South Cooper or wherever? Same. All of it the same. Uh, and that's what verse 17 says. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Really a lot of Colossians in this part very similar to what we have read in, uh, in Ephesians. I can't leave Colossians without saying this. 
uh, my theme verse, my mission statement, if you will, is found in the last two verses of Colossians 1, uh, the older NIV version. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. I hope that you remember Colossians 3, 17, because that is such an important verse that reminds us that 24, 7, 365, everything we say and everything we do is to be done as an act of worship, to honor Jesus Christ out of reverence for him. Well, let's take a quick look at the book of Philemon, because it is a it is written to one of the members of the church at Colossae. Um, we'll start reading in verse 1. It's one chapter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Paul, Timothy was there with Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. I think uh, Philemon was a man of means, and he had a home, and he had offered it up to the church at Colossae to worship there. Uh, verse 4, he thanks him for all of the things that he's done and that he is. And so then in verse 8, he gets to the point of why he wrote this letter. And as best we can tell, Paul wrote this whole letter by his own hand, which he never did, but he did with this one. Verse 8, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Paul converted him while under arrest. Formerly, verse 11, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place and helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated for you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, verse 16, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Could be Paul converted, Philemon. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Conf confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Onesimus had been Philemon's slave, and he had escaped. And somewhere in there, he had come around the Apostle Paul, while Paul was himself uh, under arrest, and, and Paul converted him. And now he's sending Onesimus back. This doesn't say that slavery is okay. It doesn't say that, uh, that it's all right to own a, a, another fellow human being created in the image of God as property, that is not okay, that is sinful. And Paul handles it in the midst of first century empire of Rome to a brother in Christ who was sending back a, an escaped slave as a brother in Christ and calling on him to do the right thing and doing it in a way uh, that um, honored the will and word of God, I believe, but also honored 
the will of Philemon to try to put it on his heart to do the right thing. It's just an incredible and emotional letter. It's a very short read. It's one chapter, 25 verses, and, um, and, and it's in all written by hand by the Apostle Paul because of the significance of the message. Uh, a very, very great and challenging statement. Okay, one more book before we leave. Uh, one more prison epistle, all of these written by Paul while under house arrest in Rome. That's what Bill thinks. Others have suggested some other times when Paul was under arrest. I think they're written then. And the book of Philippians is, uh, the, the theme is, is Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. It's a joyful book. It's a celebration. Uh, Paul talks to them at the very beginning in verse 5 about their partnership with him in the gospel. And that word partnership is koinonia. It's the word fellowship. Sometimes it's translated communion in 1 Corinthians 10. Most of the time it's translated fellowship, talking about the relationship that we have with brothers and sisters in the church in Jesus Christ. Uh, in this case, it's talking about their partnership with him in the gospel. What did that mean? Well, they were partners with him financially. They financially supported him. He refers to it again at the end of the letter in chapter 4, and he talks about the great gifts that they sent and how thankful he was for them and how much they meant for him. Uh, there were times such as in Corinth and or Thessalonica where he really didn't ask the church that he was working with to help support him. Sometimes he worked for himself as a tent maker along with Priscilla and Aquila, but sometimes he received help from others. And this specific church in Philippi from the very beginning was a church that helped Paul financially. Remember the first convert in Europe that we have record of, the first convert in Philippi? It was when Paul and Silas and Timothy had found a place of prayer. And sure enough, some women came and were praying. And Paul taught them and preached to them. And this wonderful woman by the name of Lydia and her family were baptized by Paul. And she said, look, you're staying with me. You all are staying here. I won't have it any other way. And from that moment on, the church at Philippi, uh, this Roman colony named by Alexander the Great after his father, Philip of Macedon, um, a very important Roman city, um, supported Paul financially and through prayer. And he refers to that many times. In chapter 1, he talks about his imprisonment. And he says, look, I, I know that some are preaching Christ outside of these walls simply to give me trouble, to make trouble for me. And he said, others are doing it out of a good motive. And so he talks about the ones in verse 17 of Philippians 1 who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. And then he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul did something that's so important for us to do today as well, and that is let God take care of people's motives. Be thankful for the good that other religions might do, that other Christians might do, that, that people may do that you sincerely doubt their motives. And if it's plain enough and you feel like you need to talk to them about it, then by all means, go do that in the spirit of humility. Scripture calls us to do that. But there comes a time, and Paul says it's for him it was right then, that he said, you know, some of them have false motives. Some of them have pure. I'm not going to get into that with them. I'll let God take care of that. I'm just grateful that the name of Jesus is getting out there. What a great, great 
attitude. I love hearing the songs about the birth of Jesus, joy to the world. If I'm walking through a store or listening to the radio, what a great blessing that is. How could we not rejoice over that? I know Paul would because he did. He talks, goes on in chapter one and talks about, well, am I going to get out of jail or not? I don't know. I don't know. And, uh, and he says this in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. But my hunch is I, God's not done with me in this world yet. And he was right, as best we can tell. Paul said, hey, look, if, if Nero comes around and I have this appeal heard by the emperor and he says guilty and I'm killed, I'm ready for that. To die is gain. But if he lets me go, then it's because Christ still has some work for me to do here. To live is Christ. The way he put it in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. May we all be able to say that exact thing. May we all be able to say what he says in chapter 1 verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Just like he does in Ephesians 4 verse 1, he says in Philippians 1 verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, we can't earn it. We're not entitled to it. We don't deserve it. But we can receive it with faith. And we can seek to live our lives in a manner that is worthy. In chapter 2 of Philippians, this great chapter 2, um, he talks to us about being unified in Christ and being unselfish. Uh, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, Philippians 2, verse 3, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then I think he said, he's thinking to himself, what's a good example of this that I can make? He's going to talk about Timothy later. He's going to talk about Epaphroditus later. But first he talks about Jesus Christ. And this is possibly an early Christian hymn. Some have said because it's written quite poetically, could very well be that the first century church put this to some kind of tune, however they did their chants or singing. And it's a very familiar passage, beginning in verse 5 of Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Who, verse 6, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped, something to hold on to and not let go of. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He emptied himself, some versions say. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He left heaven and became human, emptying himself, and that's a great term leaving that presence of the Father in the very throne room of God for that humble manger and a humble life and then a life of service. He lived not just as a man, but as a man who did not have a lot. And he suffered even death and not just any death, even death on the cross. And he did that for you and me. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, is the greatest illustration ever of what he told us and how he told us to live in verses 1 through 4. Live the way of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. And so he goes on and tells them in verse 12, Work out your salvation <clears throat> with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Yes, we can't earn our salvation by working hard for the Lord. Again, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians that we read in chapter 2, verse 10. Having received that great salvation and that righteousness of God that comes through faith, how should we live? Well, we should live in a manner that's worthy. And here he says, continue to bring that to completion. Because remember, it's God who is bringing it to completion. It's God who is working in you. He talks about how we shine like stars in the sky in verse 15, in the midst of a depraved generation. What a great statement that is for us today. In our world today, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, shining like stars among them. Philippians 2, verse 15. Uh, the world should see the difference in us because we do what's right, not because it's convenient, not because it's culturally popular. In fact, many ways it's not anymore. We do it because it's right. We do it because it's the will of, of God. We do it because it's what this word tells us to do. And because we want to be saved, we want to go to heaven. We don't want to lose that salvation. And that's why the New Testament is written, reminding us of how we should live. Not so that we'll be obsessed, but so that we can have that blessed assurance that comes through a life that is given over uh, to seeking to obey Jesus Christ. Um, he goes on and he talks about so many wonderful things throughout the rest of Philippians 3, and I wish we had time for it all, but I'll read a couple of important passages, or to me, that ones I want to uh, recognize today. He, he gets autobiographical in chapter 3. He talks about his earlier life as a persecutor of the church. Uh, and he says, look, if you want to brag about your being Jewish and being a follower of the law, I can do it with the best of you. I'm, I'm a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the tribe King Saul came from. Um, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. And if you want to talk about zeal, man, I was passionate. I was zealous. I was persecuting the church. And then he says in verse 7 of chapter 3, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of that comes from God on the basis of faith. We read those same words in Romans. We read the same words in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Same words in Galatians. We hear them here as well. Continuing in Philippians 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is a great purpose statement passage, starting in verse 10 and now continuing on in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind the good and the bad, and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If you don't have a personal mission statement, you can borrow mine in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. You can use a great verse like Colossians 3, 17 or Ephesians 4, verse 1. Um, but here's a great one as well in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 13 and 14. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What a great, great statement. But really throughout Philippians, the, the, the main theme is rejoice. It's joy, which is amazing because Paul was in jail. He was under house arrest. He didn't know if he was going to get put to death or, or released. And yet he says this in chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. This great passage in Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And our kids sing, I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. Why do we have that? Because we have come to faith. We have responded in faith. We have been raised from baptism to live a new life. We have trusted in Christ. We have received the righteousness of God that comes by faith. And now we take our concerns and our anxious thoughts to God in prayer. And the peace of God, which passes and transcends all comprehension and understanding, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And then this great statement in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Then he goes on and talks about their wonderful gifts and how he has learned wherever he is in whatever condition, whatever circumstances, he says, I have learned to be content. And it's in that context that this marvelous, incredible verse that we all have memorized, Philippians 4.13 occurs, I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Whether I have a lot or a little, whether I'm in trouble for the gospel and under house arrest or freely moving about on my own, whether my guy gets elected or doesn't, <laughs> whether there's peace in the land or not, whether there's money in the bank or not, whether my relationships are going great or not, I've learned in all things that I can be content because I am chosen for riches, as Ephesians said. Uh, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. It's such a great, great passage. Uh, Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. And so let's not get too worried and all upset about the things that are going on around us. I know that they're difficult. I know that they're trouble. I, I haven't seen this country in this bad of a condition my whole life, I believe. But I can tell you this. There have been worse things and worse times in the history of God's people. And I know that he's going to see us through this time as well. However it looks, 
whatever our philosophy, whatever power comes about, whatever flag is flying, um, God is still on his throne. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Prince of peace. And he offers that peace, my friends, to you and to me. It's the peace that surpasses and transcends all comprehension, all understanding. And the world doesn't get it because the world can only find that peace when everything is going well for them, when there is money in the bank, when the doctor says you're okay, when uh, their particular uh, political party is in power. None of those things matter as far as bringing us ultimate peace and joy. Paul had none of those things, none. Jesus had none of those things, none. And that's why when he interacted with the governor, Pontius Pilate, he said, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. Paul in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. We care about what goes on down here because we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. But our ultimate home is where Jesus is, preparing a place for us, that mansion over the hilltop. And there's nothing that can happen in this world that can take that away. And that's a great, great blessing. We're called to live accordingly, to live worthy of that great blessing, of that righteousness of God that comes through the response of faith, to live worthy of the one who died for us. I hope that you have a great weekend. I hope that you spend some time in these four books, these prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and be reminded of the great power of God and the great love of Christ. I will see you on Tuesday.